to see everybody in the Lord's house this morning. Uh, Richard's out on vacation on a beach somewhere. I, I don't know. I'm sure it's lovely. Uh, but we're here this morning so thankful that we can meet together in God's house. And we're going to start things off this morning with uh, Think About His Love. If everybody would stand with me, let's go ahead and start singing right now. Love so amazing. Love so amazing. 
Jesus Messiah, name of our Lord, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven. Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. All our hope is in you. All the glory to you, God. The light of the world. Messiah, name above all names, blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus Messiah. Jesus Messiah, Lord of all. Um, let's pray together, and then after our prayer, we're going to do our welcome. We're going to change it up just a little bit this morning, so uh, I'd like to pray together first. Uh, and then we'll, after we pray, we'll stand up and then we'll welcome each other to the church. Let's pray. Let's pray first, though. Father, we're, we're grateful as we come into this house of worship today. We're grateful for this new day. Father, for the many blessings that abound today because of your goodness, your faithfulness, and your love to your people. Uh, Father, you are, you are uh, the God of the nations. And Lord, as the nations today assemble and, uh, and offer their collective voice to you in worship, Father, we, we pray that you are glorified around the, around the earth. Uh, Father, for your goodness and your faithfulness. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, as he is uh, the centerpiece of salvation. Uh, Father, for redemption, uh, that, that we even have the capacity this morning to lift our voices together collectively and corporately as brothers and sisters. Father, we thank you for your spirit who is at work among us. Father, uh, reminding us uh, uh, of the work of Christ, convicting us of sin, leading us in righteousness. Uh, Father, we thank you for his work and ministry among us in this church. Uh, Father, even just this past week, as we've, been have, we've had opportunities to minister to our community, uh, Father, we thank you for those opportunities. Uh, Father, may your kingdom be enlarged today. And Father, may souls be saved. May the gospel be preached. Uh, Father, specifically, especially here today in this church. Uh, Father, I thank you for the privilege of serving this church as pastor. Uh, Father, I thank you for each and every member of this church that joins together in covenant membership. Father, to love each other and to love you. Father, bless this hour together. May, may it uh, be a blessing to you. May it glorify your name. And Father, may your people be drawn closer to you through it. And we pray this in Christ's name. And amen.
man, beautiful. Man, I tell you, I just I love well, the, the, the truth first that your sins are forgiven. Um, the amazing, amazing biblical truth that we can foundationally rest on. But then to complement that with Chuck and the voice. And uh, man, I, I could listen to that all day. I really, really could. So anyway, uh, Chuck, would you like to sing my sermon later? Would, that, would, that, you, would you like to be interested? You know what? <laughs> so, well, you know, I had this great idea once, uh, and I maybe mentioned it, Chuck, last Wednesday. I said, Chuck, we should sing together sometime. But then after that, I've changed my mind. I've taken that back. I don't think we should sing together at all, Chuck. I think it's a bad idea. What were you thinking? <laughs> anyway, let's, let's read together from the Word. I love this passage of Scripture from Titus uh, chapter 2. Um, it's a really complimentary text today to the sermon that we're going to be preaching out of 1 John. Um, warnings against worldliness. And this, this truth, especially from verses 11 through 15, um, is, is, uh, is a great reminder for the believer uh, about the truthfulness of God and, and the warning against worldliness. So let's read this together. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. The Word of God says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Amen, church. Beautiful passage, beautiful reminder uh, from our brother Paul as the word of God is read in the house of God this morning. Brother Chuck? All right, we're going to sing our offertory hymn right now. Uh, everybody would stand. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, just to know the sin
to give our offertory prayer. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for such another beautiful day. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to come into your house to worship in your precious name. We'd like to remember all those that are displaced by the flood and remember all those in Hawaii that's going through the devastation. As we come to this time for tithes and offering, we ask that we give from our hearts and let it be used to glorify your precious name. These things we ask and pray. Amen. One of, the, one of the thoughts that was occurring to me while I was sitting there um, pre- preparing for the, the preaching of the word, you know, God has gifted his body with um, talent. And uh, whether it's uh, musical talent, or instruments, or vocal talent, um, uh, just, just reminders of the, the way it's all beautiful and how it's all designed to give God glory. That's the, be- that's the beauty of it. It's, it's beautiful to have... You know, a wonderful organ and a, a guitar and singers, but it's really ultimately designed to point to the glory of God. And, uh, and I'm grateful that we can have that, um, that, uh, that privilege here at this church. Uh, it's good to know that when Brother Richard's on vacation, that, uh, that Brother Chuck's willing to fill in and, and, and do a fantastic job to the glory of God. So um, let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of First John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, I want to read verses 15 through 17. Just a really short uh, uh, passage of Scripture from the Word of God this morning, but packed full of good, good information. Um, Now, before we start, uh, I want to recap just a a little bit, kind of bring everybody up to speed, because one of the things that was reminded of last week is that uh, oftentimes when you preach through books, uh, we have to remember that that there's there's a linear conversation taking place here. And, and we're just taking parts of that conversation and speaking to those things, all right? So, though it seems like we're preaching through these things and specific things, we're really, we're looking at John's argument, uh, his, his, the totality of what John is saying. We're just breaking it up into specific parts. Uh, and so, recapping it is, a, is the best way to, to remind ourselves of what John is saying um, in this book. Now, to remember, the, the book itself is about eternal security in salvation. It's about knowing that one has confidence in Christ. Uh, it's designed to give hope. This book specifically is designed to give hope that, that we don't have to guess or wonder whether we have eternal life. We can know, right? And that's what John's argument, as he's broken down in the last three weeks, that's what he has said. The first, Remember the first sermon uh, was that John confirms that he was an eyewitness to the fact that Jesus was real. That he lived, that he died, that he, that he was resurrected, that he ascended, and that he's returning again to those to, to redeem those or to claim those uh, that have eternal life or believe in him unto himself. The second sermon John laid out was in the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, John told us why Jesus came. 
so he told us that he came in the first sermon. He told us why he came, and that was to establish fellowship with the Father. That was the whole point to Jesus' coming. And then last week, we looked at how John gave us a test. He looked at how this is like, look, you, you say you love God, that's great. How do you know? Well, he gave us two questions to answer in that we should love God and love others. Now, in part four, John is going to take it a step further. John's going to take this issue of love. Do you love God? He's going to take that a step further, and he's going to press it a little bit by comparing it to the love that we have with the world. So there's kind of like a dichotomy playing out here. He's expressed this whole, this love of the Father and, and the, the work of Christ. And he's asked, uh, he's asked us, he's asked this reader, do you love God? Okay, great. Now let's compare it to your love of the world. And so we find ourselves in verse 15 of chapter 2. So let's stand together one last time. And we ask you to stand and read God's word one more time. Beginning in verse 15, John says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray this morning. Father, we're grateful for this word. Thank you for it. Now bless it, break it, multiply it to your glory. Father, may our, our, our minds be illuminated. May our hearts be drawn closer to you this morning. Father, so that, that, we can, that we can fellowship with you through this word. Bless the reading of your word and the assembling of your people this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. And amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. So John kind of, he, he, he breaks this, this thing down into a, a comparison. Love God, yes. Love the world, okay. Let's look at what he's basically saying here. Because what's, what's, at, what's at play or what's at stake here is where our allegiance lies. Who do we love more? Do we love God more or do we love our world more? Do we love the world itself more? And that's what John is getting at. He tells us in a command almost, do not love the world or the things of the world. So that brings us to our first point this morning is that Satan wants to use the things of the world or the world itself to distract us from loving God. I mean, that's really the, that's really the, 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 the entirety of the summation of our human experience is that we are human, we are flesh, and we love God, but Satan is going to use the things that are around us to get us to love the world more, or to love God less, or to tempt us, or to distract us, or whatever. And that's really where we find ourselves this morning as we engage this text. Satan wants us to love the world. That's just the bottom line. Satan wants us to love the world. Now, on the church sign, as we drove past it this week, it says, do not love the world. And we laughed at that a little bit because it sounds on the one hand like, oh my goodness, that sounds terrible. And it's really because Mark couldn't fit warning against worldliness on the marquee. So we had to shorten it down and say, do not love the world. And then when you drive by it, it's like, oh my goodness, the first Baptist is telling people not to love the world. That we should, that we, so we should have somehow hate the world. So we really have to get to the essence of what John is really saying here because, because what he means is, this, is an important distinction to make. Surely God did not create the beautiful world that we live in only to tell us to hate it. 
Amen? I mean, it's, it's amazing, the world, the universe, the, 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 the galaxy, all of these things that we find ourselves observing and looking at. It's beautiful. So surely God didn't tell us or create such a beautiful world just to tell us to hate it. Surely He didn't design such a masterpiece so that we would despise it. Right? And surely He didn't design its potential for us not to participate. Surely He didn't tell us not to keep and tend like he told Adam in the garden, keep and tend this garden. Surely he didn't tell us to do that, only to leave us as disgruntled workers. So we have to address this part first because God most certainly did design the world to enjoy its beauty, its wonder, its blessing. He created it for that purpose. So what is John getting at when he says, do not love the world? Well, in the Greek, there is a nuance of the word world, uh, cosmos, as the Greeks would have used, that was alluring to man. Uh, when they would speak of that part of the world that would draw the, the man unto itself, then they would use this word world. One of the early church fathers put it in a context like this. Speaking of the world, he said it was the worldly affairs the aggregate of things earthly, the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures, etc., which, although hollow and frail, or hollow and frail rather, and fleeting, stir desire. They seduce us from God and become obstacles for the cause of Christ. That's the way one of your early church fathers put it. John just simply says, do not love the world, right? And this is the part of it he's speaking of, the part that draws us, that seduces us, that, that becomes an obstacle in our lives for the cause of Christ. Now, Satan is going to use this world, that part of it anyway, because he knows it's attractive to us, naturally. Uh, we are surrounded by beauty. We're surrounded by wonder. We're surrounded by potential and possibility. And so Satan knows that he can use those things because they're attractive. He knows they're alluring, that they will get our attention, that we cannot help ourselves sometimes when it comes to the things of the world. And Satan knows that if he can get our attention on that, that we will invariably take them off of God. So that's why he does it. And that's why John says here, do not love the world. Now he also says, or the things in the world. And that tells us that this morning that Satan will invariably want us to love the things in the world. Not just the world itself, but the things in it. Things that God meant for good. Satan will try to use them against us. For instance, he will take what God made beautiful and make it ugly. Right? Especially in our lives. What God made beautiful, he'll take it in our lives and turn it into ugliness. He will take what is useful and he will cause it to hurt us. Satan, I mean. Satan will take what is profitable and empty it of its value, leaving us broken. Now, understand that it's not necessarily Satan doing this. Satan is only tempting us. Satan is only taking the things of the world, dangling them out in front of us so that we will be allured to them, enticed by them, and ultimately bite to them or bite into them. 
We are the ones that are actually destroying or making ugly what God has made beautiful. We are the ones hurting ourselves. We are the ones taking the the value of God's goodness and emptying it of that goodness. We are the ones, when tempted, take what God intended for good and make it evil. And this is true for just about everything in life. This is a summary statement. This is an absolute statement. And we can look to Scripture for examples of this. For for example, in, in the book of Genesis, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was a stumbling block for Adam and Eve. Joseph's coat of many colors became too much for the jealousy of his brothers. David's boredom and lust became too much to tempt him into adultery and murder. Judas's love for money, right? Judas's love for money tempted him to betray Christ. You see how in these situations and in these scenarios, Satan used the things in the world... To, to, to tempt, to, to allure, to, to divide the heart between the love of God and the love of the world. But you see, the tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, wasn't evil itself, right? It wasn't, what, it wasn't evil in and of itself. Satan just used it to tempt Adam and Eve. Joseph's coat wasn't evil. Satan just used it to tempt his brothers. Bathsheba's beauty wasn't evil. Satan just used it to tempt a man after God's own heart. And Judas's pocket full of money wasn't evil in and of itself. Satan just used it to cause him to betray the Son of God. And so the message for the believer this morning is be warned. Be warned that Satan will use the things of the world to get us to love it more than we love God. Now, how does he do this? John moves on to this next part, his methodology. How does Satan get us to love the world and love the things of the world? Well, let's follow the dialogue here. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So Satan's methodology is first that he tempts our flesh. He tempts our flesh, right? Why does he do this? Well, because he knows the flesh is weak. Amen? And supposedly that's, the older you get, the worse it gets. That's what I'm heard of. I I don't know that experientially. I don't know that from experience, but I've heard, I've been told that the older you get, the worse it gets. Flesh gets weaker, for instance. Satan knows, though, that the flesh is vulnerable to things like fatigue and hunger, sickness and death. In fact, Jesus even reminded his disciples of this when he warned them uh, in the Garden of, of Gethsemane, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is what's weak. Amen? Now, this is a warning to say that our good intentions alone, our good intentions in the love of God alone, won't always compel our bodies to obedience. Good intentions alone are just in and of themselves. They're just good intentions. They're not obedience until the hands and the feet actually practice that intention. So, good intentions aren't good enough. They're not enough, anyway, to compel us to obedience. We can will ourselves to be disciplined. We We can try to be strong. We can try to be resilient, but our flesh has limits and can't always match up to our best intentions. We can mean well, 
But if our flesh can't deliver, and by, by good, you, can, you can take it to the bank that Satan will use that against you. Satan knows that the flesh is weak to temptation and sin. And this is arguably, in my opinion, one of his biggest areas of effort in our world today. He knows the flesh is vulnerable to pleasure and comfort and pride. He knows that. In fact, he has succumbed to it himself. Pride is what slayed him. And if it worked against him, it works against us. Pleasure, comfort, pride. Thus, he knows that he simply has to dangle these things out in front of us, and he knows that our, that our flesh will bite. Now, he may have to be patient. He may have to be patient in our lives as sometimes we're stronger than other times. Sometimes we're more resilient. Sometimes we're more stubborn. Sometimes our flesh is stronger than it is other times. But then in that moment of weakness... That moment when you're down, that moment when you're discouraged, that moment when you're frustrated, that's when Satan's going to get you. And that's why we have to be on guard against those things. That's why John is warning us here. Don't be surprised that Satan will use your flesh to tempt you because it's weak. The second area he uses is our eyes. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. By the way, the lust thereof is important as well. James chapter 1 identifies that, that let no man say that when he is tempted, he is tempted of God. Because God doesn't tempt anyone. But each one is lured away by his own lusts, his own desires. And when those desires give way to sin, and sin is fully conceived, it brings death. That's James's point in James chapter 1. So naturally, he uses our flesh, and then he uses our eyes. Satan knows that the eyes are the windows to the soul, that what they take in illuminates and informs the heart and mind. This is to say that our eyes are how we perceive the world, right? They are what inform us of the ins and outs, of the possibilities of any given day. They are what tell us what is real, and what is not. I know that's becoming harder to discern nowadays. Things seem to be deceptions around every corner and things like that. But the eyes inform. They take in what is real and what is not. They inform our minds intellectually with information. They also filter what we want to allow into our hearts and what we don't. Listen to Jesus' words in, John, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 through 23. Jesus, knowing this, warned his disciples to be mindful about what we allow to pass by the eyes. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness... How great is that darkness? You see, Jesus knew that Satan would use the eyes to tempt. So believers should be on guard. They should be guarding their eyes from these temptations. There should be, safe, there should be uh, safeguards. There should be, there should be boundaries about what we let pass through our eyes. Why? Because our eyes are vulnerable to Satan's devices. Our eyes can be deceived. 
It's the truth. I mean, we, we, we see things all the time, whether it's social media or whether it's just the news or whether it's whatever the case is. I mean, even you can even get so simple and, and almost, almost com- comical with even like magic tricks, these people with these uh, illusions and stuff. Now, some of it's pretty, pretty impressive, isn't it? You see these people do these little stand-ups, these magic shows or whatever, and it's just sleight of hand, literally. But they can do amazing things with it. So our eyes can be deceived. They can be informed of things that are not true. Our eyes can also be distracted. This is the old adage, squirrel, right? You're sitting there, you're on task, you're on mission, and you're focused and you're dialed in and you're laser, you're, you're, your sight is laser, and then all of a sudden something happens and you're distracted, especially if you have your OCD, right? Anybody OCD in here? And I, and I lost you 20 minutes ago? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Amen? Okay. No, nobody wants to admit that, right? But sometimes distractions can get us. They can get us off task. They can get us, they can get us distracted from the course of whatever we're dealing with, whatever. Um, Satan knows that. And will most invariably use it against us. Our eyes can also be abused. This is a warning for especially people who take in social media. Your eyes can be abused. Um, Breaks away from that stuff is good. Because some of the world's most notorious people, I think Hitler even himself said, "If if you can get people to believe a lie long enough, they'll accept it as truth. Our eyes can be abused. And with the things out there today in our world, abusing especially our young people's eyes, the limits are, or the possibilities rather, are limitless to what Satan can do with that mechanism. Thirdly, he tempts our hearts. That's what pride is. The pride of life, John specifically narrows it down to, which is really a, a very fascinating way of, 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 of defining the temptation of the heart. But that's what he's saying here. Satan loves attacking the weakness of the heart. This is especially true because the heart is the only part of our humanity that has a natural pro- proclivity to sin. Right? Our eyes... Our flesh and all that kind of... We, they, they are born in weakness. Our hearts are born in iniquity. This is to say that our eyes and our minds are pure, without sinful inclination when, when we are born. The heart, however, is born in wickedness because of our sin nature. So, this means that everybody's heart is born with things like selfishness and pride. Amen. I know we love little babies. But little babies can sometimes be the most selfish people in the world. They are. Besides husbands, I mean. Sorry. Anyway. I had to divert for just a second there because some of you were probably thinking, well, that's just mean. And babies are cute and precious and they're innocent and they're just, they're just heavenly and divine. They just want to pinch their cheeks and all that kind of stuff. They're, they're wicked. Their hearts are, I mean. 
<laughs> you, watch, you watch these kids in the nursery, they'll pull things away from each other. It's mine, and it's mine, and there's a fight and a fuss, and you've got to break them up, and you've got to teach them to do right. Amen? That's how it is. And, and John, speaking to this, knows this. In fact, Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is de- deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jesus, knowing the consequential nature of the heart and how it can turn the rest of the body into subjection to sin, said this in Mark 7, 21 and 22, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Those are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, not mine. It's out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus would later say, that the mouth speaks. Paul would later add to that and say abominations. So the nature of the heart gives Satan a foothold in our lives to use it against us. He knows that it can be easily manipulated with things like, hear me, emotions. Seems like the ruling desire of our world today is to be ruled by emotions. Not the mind, not the spirit, but the heart. It's why we have all kinds of passions running wild because everybody's thinking with their hearts and not with their heads. Because out of the heart come emotions, desires, and as John says here, worst of all, pride. Pride is the one that puffs us up even in rebellion against God. You see, these affect the heart above all else. And if Satan can use our hearts against us, he can get us to do whatever he wants. John says, therefore, guard your heart. Now, I want to I just pause for a minute. I want to appreciate this from Scripture because John leaves us with this warning. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's great theologically. It's, it's a great contemplation for us to be warned against. But we actually find ourselves two passages of Scripture this morning that actually showcase exactly how Satan uses that methodology. Turn to Genesis chapter 3 really quick. Genesis chapter 3, and I want to read these for anecdotal purposes. This is an example for us from scripture and what this looks like. So we can't walk away from here today and say, well, it was great advice. It was a great sermon and, and well, well done, brother Ben. Good job, brother John, that kind of thing. We can know, hey, this is what it looks like. So that in our own lives, we can guard against it. John, or rather Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, God has indeed, has God rather indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now notice this, notice verse 6. So the woman, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, 
and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now notice the methodology. Notice in verse 6 that she saw that the tree was good for food. There's the lust of the flesh. She also saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. There's the lust of the eyes. And she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. There's the pride of life. Consequently, she took from the tree and ate. She also gave to her husband, and he ate with her. There's the method. There's, there's the practice. That's how Satan did it. Notice first that he got her to question God's word. Above all, above all else, she ate because she doubted the words of God. God said, don't do it. Satan's like, did he really say that? Mm, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's how he really did it, but that's what it sounded like to me. That's how it sounds in our world. And you know, I, you know that, that passage of Scripture is a funny little thing. You know, I, don't, I don't think you're reading it right. You know, I hear that a lot from academia, especially, and these, these doctors and professors that are sitting in theological seminaries somewhere, and they're, they're smarter than us. They're more enlightened than us. And you know what? You just haven't been reading that right for 2,000 years. What's wrong with you? And then they all of a sudden say, did God really say that? Maybe he meant this. And then they get other people to say, ooh, you know what? That's actually pretty neat. That fits our modern world a little bit better. So let's, let's just run with that. And then they take and they eat and they die. And that's what happens. Turn to Matthew chapter 4 really quick. I mean, let me... Let me would you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4? That sounded so condescending, didn't it? Turn over there right now. It sounded so harsh and rude. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me in them to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Now, before I read this, I want to preface this. That this is the temptation of the Lord. The Son of God. The second person of the Trinity that's about to be tempted by Satan, a created cherub who has no authority whatsoever using the word of God against the word of God. Verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, and he said, If you are the Son of God, Command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And again, the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Notice the methodology. Command these stones to be turned to bread. There's the lust of the flesh. Right? I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will but worship me. There's the lust of the eyes. Throw yourself down from the pinnacle. 
There's the pride of life. Tempting the Lord thy God. Consequently, Jesus persevered. Now, don't miss this little... I don't want to call it a nuance, but don't miss this truth. Because where one failed, the other succeeded. This distinction is brought out later in the book of Hebrews, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. Amen? And where the first Adam was weak, the second Adam was strong. Where the first Adam ran in shame, the second Adam stood in victory. Thus, the second Adam conquered all that is in the world, placed it in subjection to his authority, and consequently assured all of those who believe in him of the same victory in Christ. That's the beauty of what John is telling us here. Yeah, there's temptations of the flesh and temptations of the eyes and of the hearts, but Christ overcame those. Yes, your fallen nature is a consequence of what Adam and Eve did in a garden, but your salvation is indicative of the fact that Christ overcame this world. That's why Jesus said, in this world you have tribulations. What? But be of good cheer. Why? Because I have overcome the world. This world is nothing compared to you, believer. It has nothing to offer you that is not placed in subjection to Christ. Now, lastly, let's get some perspective. Let's get some application because there's methods, there's all these things going on in John's teaching here. But as we jump back over to John, John tells us in this verse 17, the world's passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The first point to make this morning, in a proper Christian perspective about loving the world, about the temptations of Satan, all of these things, is that first of all, it, the world, is passing away. The world itself, and it is good and fitting for the believer to know that this world and all that is in it is passing away. All of its powers, all of its principalities, all of its people and paradigms are fading in glorious anticipation of a new earth that will be established in Christ. Since Genesis 3, the world itself has been in a state of decay and rot. Sin has marred the ideal of Eden and forced us all under the weight of pain, suffering, and death. There are bright spots in our world today. There are redeemable parts of our world today, but that is only because of the beauty of God. That is only because of the glory that we can see in it because of him. Those are the bright spots. The rest of it is falling away. God has kept for himself a people, and they are beautiful. He calls it his church. He has kept for himself a name, and it is beautiful. And he has kept for himself a word, and it is beautiful. For this reason, our affections, our goals, our desires should not center on a world that is passing away, but on the one that is to come. That's where our affections should be. Amen. We should not be desirous. Christians should not be desirous of subduing the whole earth for their own glory, but striving for the glories of the one to come. 
Because any investment that you make in this world is going to pass away. Right? They, I mean, anything that we store up on this earth is going to rot. That's why Jesus tells us to store up treasures in heavens. Where rot will not cause them to pass away. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. The world is passing away. So too are our lives. Our lives are passing away. This is a sad reality for the, for the, for the, for the individual, for the human. But for the Christian... It's good. It's glorious. Paul said for, to live is Christ, to die is death. The fact is our, our bodies can't live forever. Beyond the, the course of two to three generations of those who we affect with our lives, we'll be largely unforgotten or rather largely forgotten. Unremembered, I guess is what I should have said. I mean, think about that. Past the two or three generations that you interact with, your kids and your grandkids and potentially your great-grandkids. After that, nobody's going to remember you. And I don't mean that to sound bad. I don't mean to hurt your feelings with that this morning. But that's the truth. I mean, that's just the nature of it. Out of sight, out of mind. Why then do we work so hard to establish our names in the history books of this world? Why work so that people can build statues for us that others can tear down one day? Why, why labor for that which is perishing? Instead, we should labor for the living testimonies to the kingdom of God and the work that we did while we were alive. In fact, heaven's books should hold the accounts and the events of our lives that directly impacted the kingdom of God while we were here. Not history books. Yeah, yeah, you could write, put your name in a history book and they'll remember you and some kid will loathe over the fact that they got to take a test about you. But what about heaven's books? The book of life. The book of accounts. The things that will echo in eternity. The angels should be able to celebrate our entrance into heaven because of our investments in it, not because of the exit, the exit rather, from the previous one or what we've left behind. Angels don't rejoice because you left a retirement for your kids. They don't. They don't exit because you had X, Y, and Z while you were alive. They don't rejoice in that regard. They rejoice because a believer is now home. Our, our lives are, pass, are passing away. John reminds us of this one great truth, though, before we dismiss, as it's a positive, hopeful note that our souls will live forever. The world is passing away. All of its containing, all, all the things that it contains are passing away. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The ultimate realization of this truth lies in the simple fact that we should be preparing now for our eternal home someday. This world, our bodies, all of it's passing away. But those who do God's will will live forever. These are the ones who are granted eternal life. They're the ones who are given a heavenly home. They're the ones who now have unhindered. John's point. Fellowship with God. 
Those who do the will of God have unhindered fellowship with God forever. That's the perspective a believer should have. We will one day get a glorified body. And we'll one day hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what our perspective should be. Don't be so short-sighted in our world today where the next news headline gets you upset. Don't live like that. God is sovereign over every news headline that has ever been and will ever be. He's sovereign over every event that has transpired in the history of humankind and ones that will will be in the foreseeable future. He's sovereign. He's king. He's on his throne. And he's our Abba Father. This morning, as John brings us to this reminder, we can't help but reflect on on this exhortation. Yeah, we're human. We're going to deal with these things. But there's a higher road that the Christian can follow, one of perspective that we can do the will of God and abide in the fellowship and the presence of God forever. Let's pray this morning as we close. Father, I'm grateful this morning for this word from our brother John, Father, that has transpired through the ages, one that has echoed for the past 2,000 years off of the hearts of men and women. Father, we're drawn to it even this morning as we're reminded that our, that our flesh is weak, it's vulnerable, that it's going to be targeted for attack by Satan, by his demons, by his cohorts. There's nothing we can do to escape that. Father, we are in the world and there will be troubles thereof. But Father, what a good reminder for us to know that as Christians, that we believe in a Christ who has overcome this world. That means we don't have anything to fear, nothing to worry about, nothing to run and hide of. Father, we can be more than overcomers through that same Christ. God, I thank you for this reminder this morning from our brother John as he's giving to us the confidence this morning of salvation. Father, my prayer this morning is that if anyone hears this message and is uncertain about their eternal soul, that they can find assurance in you, that they can come to you, that they can find rest for their weary souls and find victory over sin. Father, may they commit that to you today in prayer, in obedience. Father, as you are glorified in their lives. Father, bless the reading of your word this morning and the preaching of it. May your word not return unto you void. And we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Father, Son, and